Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible therapist, author, and educator, Kate Lurie. Hello, Kate, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast. I can't wait to have a conversation with you. And today we're going to be talking about opening deeply. And for those that don't know, Kate Lurie is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. She has an MBA, is a registered art therapist, certified sex educator, and EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model. She has been practicing psychotherapy for almost two decades now with her private practice residing in Encino, California. Kay also hosts her own sex-positive podcast, Open Deeply with Sunny Megatron, and has been featured in BuzzFeed videos and has been a guest on Playboy Radio and many other podcasts. And she is here to talk about her new book, Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. How are you today, Kate? I'm great. I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm so good and I'm so excited and I really appreciate (laughs) you coming on. Um, We were talking before the show. I feel like I first heard about you and the work that you do many years ago and I've been following you for a while now. So I really appreciate us being able to meet in this way. And we haven't had an episode on open relationships or polyamory in a while. And to be honest, it's kind of hard to find folks who work in these areas. Some say that non-monogamy is on the rise. Others say it peaked in the 60s in the free love movement. And how have you seen, you've been working in this area for quite some time now, how have you seen any kind of non-monogamous practices change and develop over the years? Well, first off, I just thought I'd rattle off a couple of stats. Um, from one study, it says that a full one-fifth of the United States has engaged in consensual non-monogamy at some point in their life. And 29% of adults under 30 today consider open relationships to be morally acceptable. So times are changing. The only reason some people don't realize how massive non-monogamy is, is because most people are in the closet. When you are walking through Trader Joe's, you are walking by polyamorous people. When you walk through Equinox or your favorite gym, you are walking by swing lifestyle people. They are everywhere, especially if you're in a big city like LA, New York, Miami. There are certain states that favor a particular group like uh, Texas and Arizona have a lot of swing lifestyle people, you know, so... It is not a thing of the 60s. It's it, it, The only reason you would think that what that is, be, is if you are one monogamous and just, yeah, it, it just you're just not in that inner circle that is largely in the closet still. It's, it's funny because it almost sounds like a warning, like they're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Watch well, out. The luck- <laughs> <laughs> well, the 
lucky thing is, is that non-monogamous people, in my experience, tend to be incredibly bright. They tend to be out-of-the-box thinkers and really creative, and they tend to be very warm and friendly. And when I say warm and friendly, I don't mean in the kind of bigoted way that I hear from some folks where they're like, oh, they're just going to come at us and grab us and stuff. No, I mean, just like, you know, just like more likely to compliment you, more likely to have a smile on their face. They just have a a lot of non-monogamous people just have a warmth about them that is greater than the general population. You know, it's interesting because we've talked a little bit on the podcast about compulsory heteronormativity or compulsory heterosexuality, and not so much about compulsory monogamy, which is kind of the predominant paradigm. We see it in the fairy tales that we watched as children. So I'm kind of curious, like when you say one-fifth of the United States is practicing some form or has practiced some form of consensual non-monogamy, do you think that that's the proportion who are living their authentic relationship lives? Are there still many people who who would more fit into a different way of relating than what they have seen and grown up in? Well, you know, it, one thing I have to say is if somebody comes into my private practice or somebody or just anyone engages with me, I am not going to try and shove my agenda onto them. If you are monogamous and that really feels like your truth, and it's working for you, great, you know? But I'm not here to to say what is natural and what is not. You know, if you listen to Dr. Christopher Ryan, he will say, you know, some people will choose monogamy, even though in their heart, they're kind of drawn, they definitely are attracted to other people. They choose it like someone chooses to be a vegetarian. And to quote him, probably not perfectly, he says something like, but that doesn't mean the bacon won't still smell good, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, it's 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 one of those things that I I'm not here to to say what's in a person's heart. I think some people that gravitate towards non monogamy, I think it's a choice for them. I think other people, it's more like a full tilt orientation where you know they really can't imagine being anything other than non monogamous. So I think it depends on the person. Yeah, I appreciate you not proselytizing, you know, um, but just embracing whatever somebody's relationship style might be. Because sometimes you do see some judgment that maybe monogamous people are more closed-minded than somebody who's practicing an alternative relationship. But I'd love to get into kind of this this overall idea of what it means to be open. Because today's topic is going to focus on open relationships, which are those relationships that allow for more than one sexual or, or romantic connection. But to some folks, that sounds like opening up a can of worms, you know, opening up to a world of disaster. But we also have this idea of open heart, which I love, which could be applied to loving more people. We also have the idea of an open mind, like being open to new things. So you, your book is called Open Deeply, your podcast is called Open Deeply. And as you have personally explored this idea, what does being open mean to you? One reason I named it that is, to me, it has multiple meanings and different people are going to pick up on it different ways depending on on where they're at. I think just on a very basic level, you could describe open relationships almost like on a risk continuum. Like people that are on the left-hand side, like say your swing lifestyle people, they are sexually non-monogamous and emotional and emotionally monogamous. And then let's say on the far right are people that are not just poly, but they're living in a house together and raising kids together, right? On the left-hand side, 
those folks usually have more boundaries and rules. That's not necessarily worse or, or better. It's just that's how they roll. And I always like to say that if you get a whole bunch of non-monogamous or a lot of swing lifestyle people in a party together, like a hotel takeover, it's almost like an accountant's convention in the sense that the rule book <laughs> that they operate from is very similar. Okay. You know, the more you get over to the right side, one, um, now you're letting love come on board. You're open to that, which has many benefits, but also can cause more pain. So that's why it's more risky. And then also on top of that, from one from one triad or quad or what have you to another, their boundaries and rules may be wildly different. So th- that's another reason that it can be risky in the sense that pe- there's more chance of confusion. So, so that's one way to look at it is this kind of risk continuum. And again, it's not saying that one is better than the other. Everybody has their risk tolerance and, every, and some people come into non-monogamy wanting many loves. And some people want more sexual variety, and some people like one, some want some kind of hybrid in between. So, another way of looking at the term open deeply, and I don't get into this in my book, but for me, I've been non monogamous since 2003, and I'm pretty spiritual at this point. I've had certain things happen in my life in the last, you know, really between 2018 and now that caused me to be a lot more spiritual than I am now. One of them was I had I had cancer for a while and and I did a spiritual deep dive during that time. And I've really come to the place of believing from those spiritual experiences that our separateness is an illusion and that we're actually all very connected. And so when you quit looking at us as different bodies, but that we're all connected to this whole and that when you strip away all the trauma and all the ego, we're meant to just be love, you know? That that's the heartbeat of of where we can be. And I've seen it in certain spiritual experiences that I've had. And so, you know, there's people that enter non-monogamy for different reasons. Maybe they go in from an ego-based narcissistic reason and they're looking for a narcissistic supply. That's the low end. And then other people are actually coming in from a high emotionally intelligent place, a very loving place, um, a kind place. And I sometimes wonder if maybe on a subconscious level, they may understand that we are connected to the whole. And it, it is that expansion towards being connected to all things from a loving place. I can't, I can't prove that. But um, there is a spiritual level of looking at non-monogamy as well. If you listen to Megan from Amory Podcast, she talks about this all the time. She, re- she regards non-monogamy as a spiritual practice. Wow. Okay. So many different ways I could take this. I want to get into the emotional risk that you mentioned. Uh, I want to get into your path because it's so interesting that the spiritual awakening happening afterwards, because I would almost predict it would happen before. And then I also want to get into the the narcissistic people because there are some bad apples, right? And But let's talk about the first one because I thought it was interesting. You put it on the risk continuum and it wasn't and when you are using the term risk, what I'm hearing, you're not referring to like STD risk, but an emotional risk of falling in love with more more than one person. Because I feel like that for many people is the biggest fear, right? Like if you're, you're in a relationship and someone wants to open it and then you're like, well, what if you fall in love with somebody else and leave me, right? And then that... So what do you say to somebody who is afraid of, you know, their partner leaving them for somebody else? 
I'm happy to answer that, but I just wanted to clarify the risk continuum is really uh, the risk of pain, not necessarily a risk oh. of love, you know, because for a lot of people, they're looking for love. You know, that's, that's their intention. They chose polyamory, let's say, and they are, that's not a risk. That's, that's what they want, you know? So, so when I say a risk continuum, I mean more like a, the more you go to the right, the more you might have pain, but you also are setting yourself up to potentially have more benefits too. It's almost like a high risk stock. You can buy, you know, when you're buying a, a stock portfolio, you can go with the blue stock blue chip stocks that are like tried and true, or you can go with the high risk stock and you might like really lose a lot of money, but you might strike gold, you know, kind of like that. Anyway, so people that are afraid of love, uh, you know, it, it, it's, Again, so there's nothing wrong with skewing towards just being sexually non-monogamous and not wanting to fall in love. And I have seen people set boundaries in place where they've gone decades and been happily in the swing lifestyle without love of other partners coming on board. And that's perfectly fine. I will say that folks that decide, as soon as you decide to play separately, you are, I would invite you to be honest with yourself. Because so many people, I'll see so many people in my practice say, oh, well, we can play separately and I'm never going to fall in love with anyone else. And it's when they say that to me, it sounds like they believe they're a robot. You know, <laughs> it's like if you play separately, yeah, it, you may not fall in love, but you might. You just don't know. You don't know. And if you do fall in love, uh, chances are you're not going to want to back the truck up. A lot of times people will even have relationship agreements that say, well, we'll play se separately, but we have agreed that if one of us falls in love, that we will let go of that other person. But then when it happens, all of a sudden they're like, uh, never mind. I don't like that rule anymore. And, and they completely, and then the other partner's really upset, but you promised. So uh, I, I, I don't think that's a realistic rule to set if you decide you're going to play separately. Let's see. In terms of being afraid of love, you know. Well, being afraid of opening up one's relationship because it means it's more risky that the relationship is going to uh, end. Well, you know, is that true? I mean, when you look at monogamous, I know you had Tammy Nelson on recently and she talked about this at length when she talked about her model, which is open monogamy. And she talked about you know, how Ashley Madison is thriving, which is a website that you can go to have infidelities, even though you're married, you know, it's like, is that true? You know, there's a lot of monogamous people who say bigoted things about non-monogamy, but they're concurrently having affairs and they are concurrently falling in love with other people. So I would say non-monogamy is a way to actually manage things. And the more transparent you are, in a lot of ways, you reduce the risk of the amount of pain that you'll have. And I'll give one example briefly as in, to just drive the home, point home. There's some folks that are non-monogamous that decide to have don't ask, don't tell agreements, you know, and they think, well, I, we can just bypass all this communication that we're supposed to do and we'll just agree just not to tell each other. But the thing is, you know, let, let's say, you know, Mary and John, they're at dinner one night when they're in their early 20s and it's a beautiful dinner and they're so in love and John says to Mary, you know what? I trust you. Let's just have a don't ask, don't tell relationship. And she's like, really? And he's like, yeah, I trust you. It's good. And then 15 years go by and Mary says to John, you know, I know we promised each other, but at this point, I've got to tell you the truth. Now, 
during this time, John has told himself a story in his head, as humans do. If there's anything humans do in comparison to other animals is that we make up stories in our head. So John has said, oh, well, when she goes out on a business trip, maybe she'll have a fling on a business trip or, you know, something or, or, or maybe she'll, you know, something of that nature. Right. And then when she comes back around 15 years later and says, actually, I'm completely in love. I've been dating this person for two years and I want to be Polly. It lands as like a Hiroshima Betrayal. bomb. There's yeah. all these all these moments that he could have adjusted to if it was a, a communicative non-monogamous relationship. He has missed, and now he's getting 15 years of information in one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting the situation you're describing because I'm hearing one that it is helpful to titrate certain information, <laughs> so then it doesn't end up being a big reveal towards the end of it, um, but also how easy it is to make assumptions that that simply aren't true. And you will probably make the assumptions that make you feel safe and they might not turn out to be true. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people that there are, I'm not saying all monogamous people that are are like this, but I'm talking about the monogamous people who know that they're non-monogamous and choose to tell their partner this is a monogamous relationship and they have infidelities. You know, why does that go on? It may be that they don't want to do the legwork. They don't want to gain the emotional intelligence that is required to be able to pull this off. There's other reasons, but I think a lot of people are just avoidant of gaining the skill set required and and having those hard conversations. Absolutely. I still have notes about other things you want to talk about, but you just mentioned the skills. And I feel like that's really important because I do want people to walk away from this conversation with ideas about what skills that they want to be able to cultivate to make their open relationships, non-monogamous relationships go as smooth, smoothly as possible. So what are some of those practices, skills that really help? You already mentioned open, honest communication, for example. So what are some other things that we want to make sure that we have the capacity for? Well, I, I would say, well, one thing I would say that um, actually compassion is even more important than communication within non-monogamy. If you listen to a lot of non-monogamous leaders, they'll say that communication is the biggest important thing. But all you have to do is listen to two lawyers that are dating each other, talk to each other, and you'll watch two stellar com- communicators that have no freaking compassion for each other. And you'll watch that train wreck that train wreck happened. So uh, actually compassion leads. um, And that's a whole conversation. But if we do want to talk about communication, we have to back up a few steps and just note that one, the biggest thing that causes a, a, a block between any two people that are engaged with, you know, sexually or romantically engaged with each other is unresolved trauma. And that non monogamy pokes at our unresolved attachment injuries more than monogamy. So that heightens the chance that we may get triggered in uncomfortable conversations, which means that we need a communication model that weaves in grounding. And so that's why I came up with um, my communication model that I call EPIC. And, And I'll go through it really quickly. First, I'm just going to explain the letters, and then I'll just explain it more fully. The E is the empathy, the emotional piece. The P is the physical, the grounding piece. The I is the intellectual, the validating piece. And the C is compassion, compassion and action. So it's fixing things on the tail end, not the beginning. Now, the, the P in, in Epic 
it, this is not in a sequential order. The, the, the P, the grounding piece is before, during, after. It's whenever you need it. And so when you're having a hard conversation within non-monogamy, you're grounding all the way through it. And I can give you an example if you like. I don't know how detailed you would like me to be. <laughs> well, yeah, just to back up, because what I'm hearing from you is that uh, unresolved trauma is going to be a challenge in any relationship. Polyamory relationships are going to wake the tiger, right, as one metaphor that's often used to describe trauma. And you're mentioning how important grounding is. So real quick, what is that connection between grounding and trauma responses? Yeah. So, you know, imagine that Sally is at a, a party with Brandon. It's a play, non-monogamous play party and everybody's in the common room just talking and drinking and laughing. But Brandon is flirting with Jasmine all night and paying attention to her way more, even though it's Sally's birthday party or it's Sally's birthday. What a and, jerk. I'm just <laughs> And she's, she's, and, and, you know, they get into a whole fight and everything, but later on Sally's on her own and she says to herself, okay, I need to like unpack this within my own mind, even before I talk to Brandon about this more. And she says to herself, you know, okay, I already know what his piece is. He could have been more considerate to me and my feelings, but what, what if anything is going on with me? And so she gets in touch with the feeling that she had that night. Like, you know, so she felt angry, betrayed, sad. What did she feel in her body? Her face was hot. Her, her body felt tense. And the feeling was, you know, I'm not good enough. Like the thought is I'm not good enough. And she bridges back to like the first or worst memory that feels emotionally and in the body somatically similar. And a memory pops up of being at this gas station and her parents were laughing at a joke that her sister said so hard that they drove off leaving Sally at the gas station. And she could see them howling, laughing as, as in, in the car as they drove off. And this was not the first time that things like this happened. They always favored her sister and she always felt second best. So although the situation at the party was bad and the way he behaved was not cool, it's getting, it's like, it's getting cranked up all the way to a 10 because she has this whole history with her sister and her parents. See, that's the unresolved attachment injury that is not just one injury. It went on throughout her childhood. And so on her end, you know, there, there's the stuff that, Brand, that Brandon needs to take responsibility for. But on Sally's end, she can heal some of that trauma so that when something similar like that happens, she'll be more grounded. And so to get more grounded, it may be there's things she can do on her own, and then there's things she can do with a therapist. She can go to a therapist and do EMDR or somatic psychotherapy, that sort of thing. If she can't afford that, there's things that she can do. Well, she can do both too. You know, deep breathing is a good way to trick the body into becoming calmer. Uh, slower on the exhale because the exhale is associated with calm. If you think about it, if a car is about to hit your car on the highway, what do you do? You go, right? The right. Inhale is action oriented. The breathing out part is what calms the body. So doing deep breathing can help you get more grounded in your body. For me, a practice that helps me get grounded is just going out on my porch. I, there's a lot of hummingbirds. My three kitties come out and I pair all the beauty that I'm seeing with 
what part of my body knows about that. Like I can feel the warmth in my heart. And then I pair it with gratitude. I'm grateful for this beautiful view that I have. I'm grateful for my kitties. And when you pair all those positive resources with, so you're pairing positive resources with your body, with gratitude, and your body will normally just calm down. So that's another way you can ground your body that's, that's pretty powerful. Also, I think within non-monogamy, it's important not only to know how to ground yourself, but how to ground your partner. So there's two ways to do that. You can have a conversation when you're not mad at each other, you know, uh, you know, like In a what perfect would make world, you, yes. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, just at some point, just say, if we have a hard conversation and you start to get upset and you're not to the point of being like, don't touch me, you know, <laughs> what would help you? And it's usually 90% of the time it's something nonverbal like touch. And the person can say at that time, but a lot of times in the uncomfortable conversation, it may change. So it's always good to ask your partner and, and just say, I, you know, it, you're, you're getting tense in your shoulders. You're starting to speak more quickly. Is there anything that I can do to help you feel more grounded? You know, and if the person hasn't gotten too upset, they might be able to say, yeah, can you, can we get in bed and, and be in the spoon position while I talk to you? Or can you pet my head? Or could you give me a hug? Or can you just put a hand on a knee? Any of those things oftentimes are incredibly grounding and can make a hard conversation easier. Yeah, I love it. It's just so straightforward. And I love that the acronym EPIC. And what I'm also <laughs> hearing from you, because when you say epic communication, people do communi- think of communication as simple ver- verbal exchange. But of course, we communicate with our bodies, we communicate with our touch. So the path of empathy and then the physical part of it is absolutely, we can have that sense of grounding through loving touch. And then we get to the intellectual. And then the fourth piece is compassion. And I want to get a little bit into that. And I love how you did mention that compassion is more important than communication, which I also really believe in. And that's one of the things I love most about your book was the emphasis on compassion. You have a whole chapter on self-compassion, another one on compassion for partners, and then another chapter on compassionate communication. So for those who think compassion, why is compassion so important for our relationships and particularly non-monogamous ones? Well... Okay, so there's there's compassion for others, and then there is self-compassion, right? And as I think I said earlier, so oftentimes people come into my practice, regardless of what their relationship model is, and they sit down and they're screaming for compassion, but they're not giving it to their partner. And they basically are like two lawyers with invisible paralegals, and they're, they're more wired for war than wired for love. You know, and, you know, there's a whole book called Wired for Love. And he talks about how most of us, we we, we lead with some anxiety and the anxious ones are the ones that have survived over time because they notice the bear that was about to jump and and, and bite them, you know. Um, But these days, and so, and so the way that translates into relationships is that we're scanning for what's wrong you know, and we're, we're coming in like lawyers wanting to win. So none of that feeds into compassion. So that's one of the first things I just break down that lawyering up immediately and start building up the compassion. I think a lot of times people think that if they are compassionate, that their other, that their partner will weaponize that and, you know, use that as a way to have the upper hand. So there's all these 
things that get in the way of being compassionate. So that that need to win gets in the way. Um, so let's see. So it's easier for me to talk about the things that get in the way of compassion. But once you are in a compassionate, conscious relationship, then you can have a better non-monogamous journey. A lot of people are are operating from not a conscious place, but a reactive place. They're getting triggered or they're leading with their ego or they're leading with narcissism. And none of that has anything to do with love or compassion. So another thing that I'll see happen is a lot of times people catastrophize. Like one person says, you know, at the play party, you kept on walking away while I was talking to people and I really felt la- left. And a lot of times their partner will, be, will catastrophize and just say, oh, well, why are we even trying to be non-monogamous? You can't do this. I don't even know why we're trying, right? Rather than being compassionate, right? And so the other person just feels, you know, they just feel so shut down that they quit communicating. They quit saying what they need. And so if you don't have that compassion, if the person is always coming from that lawyering up place or that fighting place, then people quit voicing what they need. And if you're in an overgiver, overtaker relationship where you have an overgiver that's starting to fall silent because every time they try and say something they need, they get attacked. Now you're in danger of that overgiver saying yes to things in non-monogamy that are not a true yes. And let's face it, a lot of things in non-monogamy have to do with sex. And you certainly, I mean, you know, I'm a huge advocate that your yes should be a true yes within non-monogamy, you know? It shouldn't be because you're you're fearful that someone's going to say you're bad at non-monogamy or that you're, you know, it's like, it's so important to be able to be honest. And this is one of the reasons that compassion is so important and patience. On the, on the side of, of, of self-compassion, a lot of people, um, you know, don't have the positive affect tolerance for love. Do you know what I mean by positive affect tolerance, first off? I was going to I was going to say what does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So, you know, positive affect tolerance is our ability to tolerate the yumminess of life. In in movies and TV, we usually see negative uh, a tolerance for negative events being shown. Like if you think about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, we're so impressed by that character that can absorb uh, so many bad things. But in fact, especially if you have uh, a difficult backstory, uh, you may have low positive affect tolerance because leaning into joy, leaning into love is terrifying for someone with a bad backstory uh, because they could get hurt. You know, they the whole their um, experience of life is that people will betray them, that they will be left. And so people with a lot of trauma tend to have poor positive affect tolerance. Even a compliment sometimes feels like an itchy sweater they want to throw across the room. And if you can't take a compliment, how are you going to be able to tolerate the big epic love? And, and going further, how are you going to be able to tolerate many loves if you can't even tolerate a compliment? So this goes back to why we need to heal our attachment injuries. That's so interesting. Leaning into joy and love is terrifying for someone with a bad backstory. And that's a phrase I love along the lines of don't argue to win, argue to understand. But what I'm hearing from you is that additional level of not arguing to win, but arguing to be compassionate, right? To add a layer of of love 
and caring to simply understanding your partner's point of view. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, and let's just say that not all people with a bad backstory have low positive affect tolerance. There's people that have worked on themselves and healed themselves and are able to receive love. So it's not everybody with a bad backstory. It's the ones with a lot of unresolved attachment injuries are more likely to have poor positive affect tolerance. But yeah, if, if you're communicating, um, again, with the epic style, it's about grounding from the beginning. So if I were to give, I'll just give you an example. If, you know, if John and Sarah had a, a party and then the next day Sarah's like, you were making out with Veronica in the back lawn and you broke my garden gnome that my great grandmother gave me. And that's the only thing I have from her. You know how much I love her. And you never said you were sorry. And, and I'm really upset, you know, that that happened, you know, and let's say that both of them have learned the the epic communication style. Now in his head, he might be thinking about his hard day, how he got laid off at work. And then there's good reasons why he hadn't, you know, brought this up to her, but he's able to cool his jets and listen to her. Right. And so the first thing he does is he says, you know what, before we even get started, is there anything that we can do to, to get more grounded, to feel more centered before we even start this conversation? And let's say that she's not so mad. She's, she's able to say, you know what, can we just go to the bedroom and can you be the big spoon and I'm going to be the little spoon <laughs> and just, just listen to me. And, and so they get in that position, they're in the bedroom. And, you know, so now we've already started the P in Epic. Now we're moving to the E where he hears everything that she says. I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm this and that. And he mirrors back the emotional language. So this is similar to a Mago dialogue, if you know about that. Or he's like, I'm hearing that you're sad and that you're angry and you're this and that. And he might try and pull out more emotional language. Is there anything else? Yeah, I'm really disappointed in you. When he gets to a point where she feels seen, then he's going to move to the next piece. At this point, he may check in with grounding the P again. How is your body feeling? How are you? I'm still a little bit tense. Can you pet my head? Yeah, I can pet your head. Okay, now we're moving to the I in Epic, the intellectual, the validating. I can intellectually understand and validate why you're so upset about the garden gnome because that's the last thing. I know how much you love your great grandma and I know that's the last thing that you have. She's like, yeah, dude, you know how much I love her, right? So that's the, the I in Epic. And when they're done with all of that, and she's able to say, yeah, I feel like you're really hearing me and seeing me. Now we're moving to the compassion last. A lot of times people want to fix things first where he's like, okay, is there any way I can make this better for you? Is there any way that I can fix this? So this is the definition of compassion as being action oriented in comparison to empathy. And, and she says, yeah, actually in Yelp, there's, I found someone who can fix my garden gnome. Can you take my garden gnome to this person and fix it? He's like, sure, for sure. Now at that point they might pass the talking stick, but this is the front end of the Epic model, you know? So you can see that it has compassion all the way through it, where it's very loving. Um, the grounding comes across as very loving. But there's also that second definition of compassion as being more action-oriented. But that's on the tail end. If you lead with it, the person tends to feel that they're not get, being validated or empathized with. 
Yeah, I love so much of what you're saying. Earlier, we talked about what skills we might want to practice in our relationships. And these almost apply to any relationship, right? These are just good skills, no matter what relationship style that you are in. We have our four factors of epic communication. We're hearing, I'm hearing a lot about compassion, validation, empathy. We also talked about the importance of resolving our trauma and having some strategies for when our trauma gets triggered. And those are some things we want to begin to cultivate. And I'm wondering about the things we might want to avoid in terms of the mistakes that people do make along the way. Earlier, you talked about don't ask, don't tell, maybe not being the best strategy. And what are some other big mistakes that you find people make? I want to say when they embark on the path of non-monogamy, but I'm sure there's some veterans who, you know, not, no one's perfect. So the people probably still make mistakes, you know, a few decades into the practice. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is like, so a lot of people have a primary partner or a nesting partner, someone maybe that they live with, or it's their main go-to person. I think it's a big mistake to have your main go-to person be someone with a lot of narcissism, entitlement, and a lack of compassion and empathy. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make. And um but I have compassion for that choice because, you know, <laughs> the, 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 because a lot of times those people, when you first meet them, seem so charming and they, you know, they love bomb you and they seem like the best adventure buddy. And a lot of people in non-monogamy get really hooked, line, you know, just sucked in by those people because for a lot of non-monogamous people, their love language is carefree, fun, freedom and adventure. It's, it's a sixth love language past um, the famous five. And so they are captivated by that person that seems super, you know, adventurous and fun. And there's a lot of narcissists that that show up that way in the beginning. And, you know, it is not and, and sometimes narcissists can even like this this overtaker type can even seem really caring and there for you as long as what you're upset about doesn't get in the way with what they want to do is, you know, so you can date someone like this and go along thinking, oh, they're so caring. And they were there for me when I got fired from my job and when my grandma died. And then as soon as it has to do with non-monogamy where you're like, look, I, you know, I want to give you a lot of freedom, but just don't sleep with my sister. And all of a sudden they're like, you're controlling, you're trying to control me. Like, you know, it shows up in those moments where, where you're all of a sudden saying, you know, here's a boundary. I, I want to give you a lot of freedom, but just not this, just not that, you know? And uh, sometimes that's when the uh, overtaker self-entitlement stuff really can show up. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it does lead into something I wanted to talk about is the bad apples that are going to occur in any subset of the population, right? You're going to have narcissists and whatever profession or community that you are a part of. And it's so interesting to hear you mention that this is one of the biggest mistakes people make is having their go-to person be someone who lacks the compassion and empathy that that you need. And you know, even before we started recording, we talked about you know, a few people we don't, we don't need to name right now that like have undergone accountability processes, processes for uh, consent violations or other things in, in the poly world. And I'm kind of curious how we can best treat or even help some of these folks because I do find I meet a lot of people 
and they're like, oh, I tried polyamory or I tried swinging or I tried this thing once and it didn't, it didn't work out. And there's kind of the absurdity that therefore they've sworn it all off. But we can table that for a second because I usually find when you talk to them, you get into it and it's like, oh, you were just dating a jerk. Like you were dating somebody who didn't care about your needs. And a lot, there are some people who use polyamory as a guise for like not caring, you know, like when the person's like, you're not caring about my emotions. And they're like, that's because I'm polyamorous. I'm not here to commit to anyone. Right. So there's there are sorts of people that, you know, do kind of give it a bad name. And, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, just it's kind of open ended, but like, what's your take, and what can we do about it? Um, you know, this is the thing with certain behavior patterns; they might be egocentric or egodystonic. If a behavior pattern is egocentric, then it means you don't think there's there's anything wrong with you, and so a lot of nar- narcissists, their behavior is egocentric. With any behavior that's egodystonic, that means I can see I have this bad behavior pattern and I don't like it and I'm willing to work on it. Anybody like that, you can work with that person. And even in my practice, every now and then I'll get like somebody just with narcissistic symptoms or maybe a baby narcissist. And one way you can, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and one way you can work with them is to show them the benefit of being kind to their partner. This is not something that's this is not something that I'll continue to do, but for a little while just to get them to sometimes you can have a narcissist and say and let them see, you know, if you're kind to your partner, then this is how it'll benefit you. And of course, you don't want to keep feeding into that that cuz that's got its uh negative side uh as well, but sometimes when the narcissist go at first they're like, "Oh, it'll it'll benefit me. Like I'll get to have another girlfriend." Or a boyfriend, if I make them happy, and it starts out by being self-serving, but sometimes if they're a baby narcissist or just with narcissistic symptoms, all of a sudden they start to realize, oh, it fe- it, it feels good to make my partner feel good, and it can sometimes gravitate towards a true compassion rather than something that just looked like compassion but it was truly self-serving. Sometimes you can get them to have the experience of what compassion feels like and they can start to shift. But these are, that's only with like little, like baby narcissists or folks folks with very light symptoms. Sometimes you can shepherd them along towards realizing compassion can actually feel good, you know, but at at the end of the day, I I would encourage people to uh, steer away from dating people that are self-entitled when you're choosing to be a uh, non-monogamous. And, and I'd like to say, just add something, which is this, this person is not a bad apple, but sometimes there are, you know, this is just a real struggle. Sometimes people struggle with like truly, they truly are anxious. Maybe they feel, you know, maybe they have an anxiety disorder or what have you. And within non-monogamy, someone like that can show up as being very controlling and sometimes an uh, even worse connection is that anxious person that's also dating the narcissist. That's just like a, a situation of pain. But some, it's like the person that is anxious, they think they're just managing their anxiety. They don't realize how controlling they come off. And it's like if you're anxious all day long, every day or all the time, you might want to get evaluated by you know, a psychiatrist or a therapist you know, and get some real help. 
Because if you're always managing your anxiety by trying to control everyone around you, and especially non-monogamy, that's not going to work well. Because again, the love language is oftentimes carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. And if there's anything that'll piss off a non-monogamous person is is anything that like chips away at their freedom. Like a lot of, you know, a kind evolved non-monogamous wants to have emotional intelligence and have good boundaries. But if you're super controlling, that tends to be super triggering to them and it doesn't go well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So did I answer your question enough about non-monogamous, uh, how to work with narcissists? I, you know, For sure. No, absolutely. You know, I'm hearing another really important skill. This is something we all need to have. It helps us in relationships is a simple willingness to grow. We're going to make mistakes on whatever path it is that we take in the world. And we have to have a level of self-awareness to be able to look at those mistakes. If someone points out a mistake that maybe we don't feel was necessarily like the worst thing, but recognize that if we are able to cultivate compassion and empathy for others, it's going to guide our behavior in a positive way that isn't necessarily restrictive when we are meeting the emotional needs of multiple people. Right. And so I'll ask you like, you know, kind of just a really simple question that might help some of these misguided people, for example, um, who who just like, what I'm, you know, I'm poly. I don't need to care about people's emotional needs. But basically, like, what would you say the difference is between a polyamorous or ethically non-monogamous person and someone who simply wants to sleep with as many people as possible out of their own selfishness and a desire to inflate their own ego? Uh, see, that, that's so tricky. So first off, let, let's just say, that if you're a be, if you're being authentic about that, like say you are a solo, you're a solo polyamorist, or you know, um, it, there is nothing wrong with wanting to have a lot of lovers if you're authentic about that. If you come from the get go and on your dating profile or on that first date, you say, "Look, I have a lot of lovers. I'm having fun going to all the parties. I want to do all the things, and this is just who I am." you can sign on board for this or not, you know, then you're being authentic. And that person hopefully has their, you know, their big girl pants or big boy pants, etc. on and can make that decision, you know? So it's not, as long as you're being authentic about who you are, <laughs> then go do you, right? It, it, it gets problematic, you know, when the person is being duplicitous. When they're manipulating the person, when when they're choosing someone who is easy manipul, you know, easy to manipulate, and you know, you just, I mean, honestly, that profile, that narcissistic profile, it's not just in non-monogamy. They that profile shows up everywhere, right? It's just the narcissist is drawn to non-monogamy because it does provide a certain narcissistic fuel, which is a lot of lovers. You know, some people seek, you know, a political office because the narcissistic fuel is all your followers, right? It's like the narcissist, because they don't have the fuel of love, they have to seek another type of fuel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm hearing is basically, you know, honesty from the beginning, open, honest, forthright communication is morally <laughs> much more acceptable than manipulation pretending that like, oh, yes, I'm open to a relationship with you. If that's going to get me, you know, saying what you need to do and like to get into bed with somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if if you have worked on yourself and you understand how to love well, then you start to be able to recognize it in other people. A lot of people have been kind of conditioned by our society that 
love isn't something you have to work on, that it organically happens and, and that's it. But love is to learn how to love well, going beyond like that love feeling inside of you and realizing that it's this huge skill set and that even on your deathbed, you could be loving well better than if you're on that journey to learning how to love well, then you can start to recognize someone who's able to love well also. So as we're winding down, I just wouldn't mind getting a little bit of a lovely little sales pitch for the book, so to speak. So like, let's say I, you know, I've been practicing, you know, non-monogamy for a while. I've read a few of the, the, the main books, right? And you can also tell a little, a little bit about what brought you to write and publish this book um, in terms of, you know, what, what are some new things that Open Deeply really brings to the table? Well, you know, I, I think... Um... Well, one thing that I noticed is that people would come into my practice and they had read The Ethical Slut and Opening Up and some of these books, and they're amazing books, but they would say to me, you know, and I attract very bright clients, they'd say to me, we're a month in and these books aren't addressing the things that are coming up in our non-monogamous relationship. So I really tried to create a book that addressed that. You know, it's like people want and need to go deeper. And so I created I wrote Open Deeply. So with Open Deeply, it does, again, talk about, it, it starts out with the compassion piece that we talked about. That's There's a huge breakdown of, of why that's so important. But it does take you on a journey from talking about different attachment styles and then explaining what happens, uh, why uh, attachment injuries are you know, get triggered in non-monogamy and leads to how to ground yourself and then leads to the epic communication model, that whole trajectory. You know, Polysecure talks about this kind of thing. This is Polysecure solely talks about attachment styles and all of that. My book has greater range. You know, hers is like more focused on one topic. Mine has greater range. It has a lot of vignettes. It talks about all the the key things that I've seen that go awry in non-monogamous relationships. And it, it just hits as many of those key things all the way through my book with vignettes. Because one thing that I've noticed in my practice is a lot of times if I say a concept, people sometimes give me the scrunchy face and they don't quite understand what I mean. So I try and attach it with a, a vignette that is an example with every concept that I am putting in there. And the book is packed full of different situations that can go awry within non-monogamy. So, so that's different as well, because a lot of the books that are out there, one, there are, a lot of them are 101 books, and this is definitely a 102 book for sure. And two, a lot of them are very general and don't get into the specifics of, of how this actually looks and how, you know, this is very much more of a manual and a blow by blow of how you can really do this, you know? Absolutely. And I just want to mirror some of the things you said because that was those were a few of the things I loved most about it. I loved your emphasis on compassion. I loved how you went into attachment theory. And just talking to you now has been so informative and it's clear that you bring a trauma-informed and sex-positive approach that just shines through everything it is that you do. So I definitely encourage all of our listeners to check out Open Deeply. And before we close out, I do have to ask you the question I love to ask all of my guests which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? So many things, so many things. I mean, one, one thing I, I would say is, is just that, you know, as I've said all through this, 
the greatest, the, the main thing that blocks two people from having amazing love is their unresolved traumas. Those unresolved traumas get projected into the relationship in different ways. It's like if we can heal our unresolved trauma and learn to live, it's, and from that place, then we quit being reactive. And now we can start to be conscious and present and in the here and now. And from that here and now place, that's where love lies. It doesn't lie in thinking about tomorrow or worried about the past. It lies in like those tantric moments where you're hand, you know, hand on heart, hand on heart, gazing into each other's eyes and able to be present in gratitude and in love, mind, body, and spirit. And we're only able to really have that kind of connected love in the here and now if we heal our unresolved trauma. Absolutely. Love lies in the here and now place where we are fully present, mind, body, heart, and spirit. I love it. Thanks so much, Kate Lurie, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? So I have a website, katelurie.com. The two websites are the two social media handles that I use the most are Instagram, which is open deeply with Kate Lurie and TikTok. It's the same open deeply with Kate Lurie. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Just type in Kate Lurie and I'll pop up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my my book has been out uh, since April 19th. It's it's I'm so happy to see that it's kicking butt. It's been Yay. number one first first, second, and third in new releases within human sexual studies with Dr. Ruth on my heels. Um, (laughs) So I was super happy to see that because I I had no idea how it would go. And you can buy my book in in three forms, Kindle, audiobook, or paperback, wherever books are sold. Please support your local independent bookstore. Yay. Well, I'm so happy to hear that's going well. It's an amazing read and I appreciate the work it is that you are doing and I appreciate you so much for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. I hope you remember all the very valuable lessons that Kate shared with us today. Some of them include that one-fifth of the United States has practiced some form of consensual non-monogamy. And the more transparent you are, the more open and honest you are in your communication, the more you reduce the risk of how much pain you might have in the future. When you strip away all the trauma and ego, we are meant to be love. Remember... Epic communication, empathy, physical, intellectual, and compassion. And compassion is more important than communication. And we haven't emphasized it, but she mentioned it many times because I love this idea that there is now officially a sixth love language, one of carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. So I love that concept as well. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.